First note. Paul's, let this sink in, Paul's usual pattern when he wrote his letters, and that's what Romans is, Romans 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, those 13 books that we know Paul wrote, they were letters to churches or individuals. Typically, when Paul would write a letter, he would begin with specific theology. Specific theology. Doctrine. And then that would lead to very specific application. I'll go ahead and tell you, that's what I aim to be. That's the kind of preacher I want to be. I don't want to ever just get up and start saying, Hey, you know, Graceview, Brian, why did, I didn't even see you. You slip in here all of a sudden, unannounced. There's Brian Waters, one of our missionaries. Great to be here. Thank you for being here. Um, what was I saying? I was saying something about Brian, one of our missionaries being here. Uh, I don't want to be a preacher that just stands up, you know, when I start saying, today I'm going to tell you to do this and this and this, and just spend my whole time giving you a bunch of to-do lists. I want to be a kind of preacher that gives you doctrine that leads to doing, and if I could say it this way, proper belief leading to proper behavior. And that's what Paul does. You say, Jeff, why are you introducing the message this way? It will not be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, kind of grab, you know, get ready, Do glance back at chapter 8. I want you to see how chapter 8 finishes and we're going to let it flow as if we were going to chapter 12. Watch how easily this would happen. Most any commentary you pick up on Romans is going to point this out. Look again back at verse 38. We had this crescendo of the believer's security in Christ. Paul concludes chapter 8, maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible. He says, for I am sure that neither death... Hey, Christian, let this internalize. I am sure neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. That's a huge one. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth. In other words, nothing in the universe. And if that hasn't covered it, here it comes. Nor anything else in all creation, none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, because of all these wonderful things in the last 11 verses of chapter 8. If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's how you should respond. Do you see how neatly that would flow? It'd be like, man, we got chapters 1 through 8. Chapter 8 finishes, jump right into chapter 12. Now give yourself for the Lord based on all that he's done for you, based on the mercies and the grace of God. It would work. I'm telling you, it would work. In fact, that's how a lot of preachers preach this book. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Chapter 1 through chapter 8, it's great. Skip over to chapter 12. Why? I don't know why. I've heard some allude to Romans 9, 10, and 11 as if it's parenthetical. Maybe, and again, I don't know what all they mean by parenthetical, but you almost get the idea from some that it's like, well, God didn't really mean these chapters. These chapters have some hard things, some difficult things, some un-American, unhuman thinking things, and so we're just going to skip over those, and let's get to the application in chapters 12 through 15. It's going to be great. I don't want to do that. I don't want to just skip over. So here's what you say. What in the world is chapter 9, 10, 11? Well, Paul's given all this theology, and before he jumps into the heavy application, the doing, the behavior, he keeps the theology going a little bit longer because he needs to talk about the nation of Israel. And so he's going to point his attention for a little time in the whole Jewish-Gentile dynamic. 
And we don't need to skip it. If you skip Romans 9, 10, 11, you're going to have gaps in your theology. And you're going to wonder, like, what's this all mean? And you're going to have a lot of unanswered questions. So let's not do that. This morning, we're going to kick off. But I'll tell you again, if you were here four weeks ago, we had a tough subject. And we'll be heading back into that again, uh, frankly, even more pointedly in the coming chapter. Not so much today. Uh, Today we just get to introduce the chapter. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read down to verse 8. Here's what Paul writes as an inspired writer of Scripture. Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. Picture this man writing this. Readers, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. In the Holy Ghost. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Who is God? A lot of people change verse 5. A lot of translations mess with the text and just ruin it. Because they hate what it says. It cannot be clearer. The Israelites, verse 5 again. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, Old Testament quote, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Unquote. And we'll only go to verse 8 today. And we'll preach verses 1 through 5. So verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Would you notice with me this morning, again, I, I, I love three points. I don't strain to have three points. Sometimes we have four. We have had five, six, seven Sometimes two, this morning three seems to work. Uh, We can't hit everything in this text, but I want you to notice with me three things. Number one, uh, this is introductory for chapter 9, 10, and 11. We're going to look at the dilemma concerning Israel, and this will be brief, not going into it very long, the dilemma concerning Israel. Many things Paul's going to address in verses 9, 10, and 11. 
I can't hit them all. I want to throw two out to you. Ready? I'm going to throw two out to you. You're going to have to use. You remember when your first grade teacher said, now, kids, put on your thinking cap. Like, what is a thinking cap? You've got to use your brain for the next couple of minutes. All right? And the more churched you are, the more questions you're going to have. What's going on? What's Paul is addressing? Many issues I want to focus on, too. Number one, here it comes. You ready? Paul is going to address the Jewish issue because there's growing Jewish concerns over what, let this sink in, over what had been a predominantly Jewish church in the beginning is becoming, was becoming, AD 56, more and more and more Gentile. They're 25, 30 years into the church now. The church begins at the end of the 20s AD, the day of Pentecost. It was only Jewish in Jerusalem, only Jewish. You say, were there no one, was there no one there who was not a direct bloodline descendant of Abraham? Oh, they were, but they were adherents to the Jewish religion. They took on the circumcision and the dietary laws and they took on the Old Testament and they took vows. Basically, they became Jews and in the process, they heard about Jesus, put their faith in Him as the Messiah and became Christian Jews or they were born Jewish. But eventually, persecution sets in and the church leaves Jerusalem and all of a sudden, Gentiles start coming into the church. Listen carefully what I'm about to say. You apply this as needed. Many times churches, and again, I'm just using my hands, this is so generic. Many times churches are like this, but God blesses, and they become like this, and like that, and like that. But those who were here when it was like this, some love it. They love that. God's moving. This is wonderful. But when it does this, others who were here under this that think very small, they struggle with that. What's going on? It's changing around here. It's not the way it was three, four Five years ago, it's not the way it was a year ago. And what's going on? And they get all worked up like this is a bad thing. The Jews are having a little bit of that. Hey, is this going to keep going? And frankly, I'll tell you, if you look at church history, it was all Jewish. And then the Gentiles started coming. Some were accepting of that. They had to work through some struggles, had a conference about it. But it was almost like the more Gentile it went, the more the Jews retreated. Hated that. Why? The second issue is this this is more pointed here it comes you ready I told you the more you know about your Bible the more this will make sense the Old Testament was full of promises made to the Jews that they're going to be blessed you, you guys are familiar with this right the Jews were going to be blessed and it's directly tied, it's connected to when the Messiah comes, we're really going to be blessed. We're going to be elevated in this world. And, and, we're going to kind of, and, and our Messiah, he's going to rule and reign. He's going to be one of us. They're anticipating that. Now think about that. AD 56, if you're a Jew, you have all these promises. We're God's chosen people. We're special. And we're going to be blessed. We're blessed now, but we're really going to be blessed when our Messiah comes. Now here's, here's the dilemma. So what's the dilemma, Jeff? Here it comes. Since most Jews then until now reject Jesus as the Messiah, let that sink in, recap. Jews, the Bible says, are going to be blessed. It's in connection especially when their Messiah comes. Most Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah. They don't accept him as the Savior. What would they conclude? They would come to one of two conclusions. This is a fact. Most Jews do not accept Jesus. So one of these two things has to be the case. Either God's promises in the Old Testament were fake, they weren't real, he couldn't keep them, or, 
Are you ahead of me? What's the other possibility? Let me recap again, because I want you to get there on your own before I let out to you. Ready? The Jews are blessed, especially when the Messiah comes. Well, here Jesus comes, and some Jews and many Gentiles are saying he's the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. But some of the Jews are asking this question, hold on. If, if the majority of Jews have rejected Jesus and we're not experiencing a time of blessing, then either God's Old Testament promises are false and not true, or what's the other thing? Jesus isn't the Messiah. And we need to keep looking for another. And frankly, most Jews to this day are looking for another Messiah. They think we're just over here being nuts. We're following a lie. What they would say is, Jesus is a fake. Paul, your gospel is a fake. And that would be their dilemma. I told you we'd refer back to chapter 8. Look back again. It will not be on the screen, but would you look briefly at chapter 8, verse number 31. Paul asks this major question, follows it up by four other questions to answer this one. Verse 31 in chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? And here's his first answer is with another question. Here's his conclusion of chapter 8, 28, 29, and 30. What do we say? That all these things are going to work together for good to those that love God. Man, if they've been foreknown, foreloved, if they're part of that group, then they've been predestined to become more like Christ. They will be called and they'll respond in faith and he will justify them, he will declare them righteous and they eventually will be glorified. Paul says it all works out. So Paul's conclusion, verse 31, what do we say to this? I'll tell you what we say to this. Bottom line, if God is for somebody, then really who can be against them? No thing, no one can successfully oppose anyone that God is for them. Uh, hey, Paul, this sounds great and everything. I love that, I hope it's true. I got one big, one big problem. What's your problem? Paul anticipates it because he's taught this before. This time he's writing a letter to a congregation hundreds of miles away. But he knows that question. I know what you're thinking. Here's your question. Paul, hope you're thinking. Didn't God make very similar promises to the Jews? Now you're just telling us, we're secure, we're eternally secure. Because if God is for us, nothing we do, nothing anyone else, nothing that happens can ever take our salvation from us. I love that, but didn't God make similar promises to the Jews? And to this day, most Jews reject Christ as the Messiah. And frankly, we can put it nicely, most Jews have not gone to heaven. And if you put it even more bluntly, Paul, most Jews for the last 2,000 years have gone to hell. So Paul, my question is, if the Jewish nation is not secure, then who really is secure? Do y'all see that? This is like, whoa, let's just skip to chapter 12 and let them worry about those questions. No, we need to deal with these questions. You say, what in the world's the answer? He gives one answer very quickly here in verses 6 through 8. The other one, it's going to come like more or less in chapter 11. Listen carefully. We're not going into it today. I'm going to throw it out. And we're going to keep moving. You say, what's the answer to that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. If they were supposed to be blessed when the Messiah comes, but they're not receiving him, and many of them as individuals are dying without going to heaven, they're not putting their faith in Christ, they're going to hell. What do we say to that? Paul, in essence, is going to say two things. Number one, the Messiah is going to come in two stages. There was the first advent of Christ. There will be another advent of Christ. And the second answer is what he told us in verses 6, 7, and 8. Here it is. Not all descendants of Abraham are included in the promises. The promises are for the nation, but not all individual Jews. You've got to look at it and say, yeah, but we're in a 2,000-year time period. But in the whole scheme of things, God is not 
uh, you know, lied concerning his promise. What Paul is saying, the promise has not failed. Everything is on schedule because not all descendants of Abraham were included in the promises. If I could say it more bluntly than that, here's what I'll say. Being directly bloodline related to Abraham. Maybe someone in here this morning, you are a Jew. I mean, you really are. You have tremendous advantage. Talk about that in a moment. But being directly related to Abraham, I'm going to go further, and this would be his audience here. You say, I'm not only related to Abraham, I have his his blood in my veins. I actually... At that time, back when the, when the temple was still there, they kept the ceremonies. They offered fruit. They offered grains and vegetables. They offered animal sacrifices. They kept the dietary laws. They did their best to keep all the moral laws, all the do's and the don'ts. Nobody does it perfectly. But man, they did it better than most. In fact, let's go ahead and tack on all the things that the rabbis tell us we have to do. We're doing our best to keep those. You know what Paul would say? You can do all of that. Be related, be related to him. But you will die and go to hell unless you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have to put your faith. Can I say it this way? Even they must believe. But look, they have all these things they're doing. They must believe in Jesus. And if they must believe, Grace, if you listen carefully, you must believe. John chapter 10. I haven't forced this. It just kind of seems like we've needed to hit this the last few weeks. John chapter 10. I'm going to read about five verses. This is concerning Jesus in in the temple. John writes the following, verse 24 of John 10. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, really, this is a simple text, but a lot of ramification. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us. Plainly. Translation. Come on, stop playing games. Are you him or not? Tell us. Come out. Verse 26. Sorry, verse 25 in the middle Jesus answered them I told you come on tell us are you him or not tell us I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep it's real simple Here come the Jews. Tell us plainly, are you you him or not? I have told you. But you don't believe. All the works support everything I've said. But you don't believe. You know why? You're not of my sheep. Guys, I didn't write this. Verse 27. My sheep. You say, who is his sheep? Real simple. Here's a simple description. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. I know who's mine and who's not. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know why? You're not my sheep. You don't believe. You will not accept me as the Messiah. Back to Romans 9, number 2 this morning, would you notice with me? Paul's unimaginable burden for Israel. Paul's unimaginable burden for Israel. This is verses 1, 2, and 3. What we're going to look at for a few moments is Paul makes two tremendous statements about his feelings for the Jews. Frankly, I'll tell you, one's very understandable and the other one just seems not only unrealistic, it seems outrageous. That one, I get it, understand that. That one is crazy, I don't think I believe you. First of all, the understandable statement that Paul makes about his kindred, his relatives, the Jews, is in verse number 2. 
Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is understandable. You understand this? Get the picture. Paul's living life, and if I could just kind of act out a burden. It's constantly weighing a weight. No matter what he's doing, he's constantly thinking how his people, the Jews, are separated from Christ. Let this sink in. Simple statement. If you are separated from Christ, you have no life. And the Jews were separate from Christ. They have no life. This is a burden to him. And so I propose to you, Paul has a very unique blend. We were doing a recipe. Here it comes. Paul has, like we sang a few minutes ago, unspeakable joy. Unspeakable joy with great sorrow and unceasing anguish. You say, nobody can have all of that. Nobody can have unspeakable joy and great anguish, and great joy. I'm sorry, great sorrow. No one can have all of that. Yes, they can. A spirit-filled person can experience all of that. Where's the words of the following? He says, when Paul looked at Christ, he rejoiced. But when he looked at the lost people of Israel, he wept. Paul has an unimaginable burden for Israel if you have your Bible, would you turn for a moment, Acts chapter 9. Flip over to Acts 9. Every now and then uh, we'll hear someone say, well, there were these 12 apostles of Jesus. Judas betrayed him, got his money, tried to throw it back. He had some regret and some sorrow. He didn't actually repent of his sin. He goes out and hangs himself, and he dies and falls down off a cliff, and he bursts asunder. So I guess Paul became the 12th apostle. Is that correct? Paul did not become the 12th apostle. Matthias becomes the 12th apostle. I'm going to propose to you, Paul has a unique ministry that the other 12 apostles do not have. Acts chapter 9, we can't go over it all, but Paul is on a mission. What's happening? Paul is a devout Pharisee. He's a Jew. He's a, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's an Israelite man. He loves in his heart. He thinks he loves Jehovah God. And he hates anything that threatens the Jehovah God or is looked at as heretical. And these Christians like you and I are trying to say that a man is God who came in the flesh. That's crazy. We Jews killed that heretic. And now I'm going to kill the, the Christians who are going around saying he is the Christ. We're going to put him to death. So off he goes. He gets his authority from Jerusalem. The high priest says, yeah, go get all the way up to Damascus. He nears the city of Damascus. Jesus himself proves he really is alive and encounters Paul. And Paul is blinded for three days. And Paul's in the city of Damascus on a street called Straight Street. It literally is there today. And a man named Ananias is told, a Christian, a disciple named Ananias, God tells Ananias, go to Saul. Watch verse 13. He tells Ananias, go to Saul because Saul has seen a vision of you coming to him and you're going to help him get his sight back. I'm going to use you. So verse 13, Ananias is going to have a little bit of a discussion with the Lord. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, translation, I think you got either the wrong guy or the wrong idea. I don't know if I'm the wrong guy. I think you got the wrong guy in him. Lord, that's, that's Saul of Tarsus. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. This man's slaughtering us. He hates us. What do you mean I'm supposed to go to the house he's in? Verse 14. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go. 
Watch this. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I'm telling you this morning, Paul was not the 12th apostle. Paul was his own type of apostle who had a much broader ministry than any of the other 12. He will be my chosen. He's a choice servant to the Gentiles. He's going to talk before kings and governors and to the Jews. That in mind, flip over to chapter 22. We get Paul's own version of what happened uh, here. Again, we're kind of piggybacking off what we just read. Chapter 22, verse number 17. Get the dynamic. This is actually months, if not years, after Paul got saved on the Damascus Road. Look at verse 17. So God's already said he's going to be a choice, unique servant. He's going to be a unique ministry. Verse 17. Paul's own account. He says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... This is first-hand account. I returned to Jerusalem. I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me. Six visions Paul gets in the book of Acts. Here's one of them. He says, I'm in a trance in the temple in Jerusalem. I saw him saying to me, here it is, make haste. Get out of Jerusalem. Quickly. Because they will not accept your testimony about me. And Paul's going to get in an argument with the Lord, kind of like Ananias did. Here comes Paul. He's going to get in an argument with Christ. Verse 19, I said, Lord, no, 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 no. They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. They knew I hated Christians. They know me more than anyone else. I was their star. I'm the one who said, we're going to hunt these Christians down. They know I more than anyone else hated Christians. And so when I tell my people, the Jews, I encountered Christ. He really is alive. These Christians are correct. You need to become a Christian. Lord, they'll listen to me because I have the credentials. I've got the background. Verse 21, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. No, 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 Paul. Your change is not going to convince them. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to see your change as the worst traitor of all. They're going to hate you more than they hated all the rest of them. And so I'm specifically calling you to the Gentiles. And yet if you follow Paul's life on the missionary journeys, though most of his ministry was to us, everywhere he went, if possible, he always started his ministry with a Jewish emphasis. He would always go to the synagogue Tell the Jews, hey, you're looking for the Christ. He has come, and this is who it is. And he would beg and plead, and a few would get saved. And then here comes some Gentiles would hear about it, and they would start getting saved, and that would really make the Jews mad. And then the Jews would kick him out, and then Paul would go and extend his ministry to the Gentiles. So now we're back in Romans 9. So verse number one, verse number two, Paul says, I have great sorrow and ceasing anguish in my heart. They're cut off. My people are cut off. I'm burdened for them. God's called me to the Gentiles, but I really have a heart for the Jews, and it always comes out in my ministry. I go to them first, and God's okay with that. You say, Jeff, what's the unimaginable burden? Would you look back at verse number one? I want to propose to you that Paul would be known as an honest man, and you would think because he's an honest man, do you all know an honest person? Who's the most honest person you know? I mean, who's the person you like? They, they just wouldn't lie. When they say it, and especially if they really thought about it, I believe them. Even if it's a little different or maybe even strange, I'm going to believe them. In their right mind, if they're in their right mind, I, there's this one person I'm just like, I, I would believe them. If they say they saw a UFO, I'd probably be like, 
Really? When was it? Where, what did it look like? Could you draw me a picture? I, you, ever, you know anyone like that? Watch this. You would think Paul's good reputation coupled with any one of these four things in verse 1 would be enough to tell his audience he's not lying. But he lays it on thick. Verse number 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience. I know you guys think I'm flippant when I say this. I know you guys think he's exaggerating. And someone's going to say this. Hey, Paul, easy to offer what you don't have. Easy to offer what's impossible. Sure you would. It'd be like me telling you. Hey, if I had a million dollars, I'd give it to you. Yeah, right. Of course you would because you don't have a million dollars. You're right, I don't. And if I told you I'd, if I had a million dollars, I'd give it to you, don't believe me. Don't. I might give you some of it. I'm not giving you the whole million dollars. Paul is going to say something far more outrageous than that. In fact, he knows what he's about to say. It's so crazy, so outrageous, he literally calls on God as his witness. Lord, put me on the stand. You know my conscience. You know I'm not lying. You know I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth in Christ. Holy Spirit, Christ, God the Son, you're my witness. Holy Spirit, you're my witness. I'm putting myself under oath. I am not being flippant. I've actually thought about this. If there were a contract laid in front of me, I would sign the contract. There's no going back. You say, what is he saying here? What's so unimaginable? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Some of you in here have donated blood. Some platelets. Some of you have donated your bone marrow. A few of us, I'm looking around, I see some of us. We have a very good friend who 12, 13, 14 years ago gave his kidney to someone else. Some people have given a portion of their liver to be regenerated in someone else's body. Do you know what I'm saying? These are, these are sacrifices. A few people have had such love for someone, literally they gave up their one shot, one shot at this life to save their child. Or a good friend. Uh, but, but what's going to happen to you? It's okay. Or maybe they jump in front of something. Or they withhold. And it really costs them, I mean, they die. A brother in arms. These men and women dying overseas, I know they really do. They are fighting for us back home, but they tell us more than anything, they're fighting for the guy right next to them that they've been training with for months and years. And every now and then, somebody sees what's coming, and they will literally jump on something, or they will jump in the way of something to save their brother in arms. You say, there's no greater sacrifice among men. I'm going to propose to you what you're about to read. What you have read in verse 3 is the greatest sacrifice anyone is willing to make. Anyone among mere men, this is the greatest. You say, what in the world is Paul offering? When he says, I could wish for my people, my kinsmen, the Jews, that I would be accursed and cut off from Christ. He's literally saying this, God, and someone say, Paul, it's impossible. You're right, it is impossible. Paul, even if you could, it wouldn't help them. I understand that. It wouldn't help them. Paul doing this would not help them. But Paul says, if it would, I love them so much. If God drew up the paperwork and there's no going back, don't you at least want to try it for five minutes? No, I don't need to try it for five minutes. Lord, if my people, the Jews, would go to heaven, then you take away my salvation, send me to hell for eternity. I will do it. I'll sign right now. I've already thought about it. Who do you love that much? What's their name? Let that sink in. 
There's no going back. There's no let me try it 15 minutes, see how bad it is. Paul says, I love them that much, I don't need to try it. Oh, you, you don't really mean it. God is my witness. Holy Ghost, Son, my conscience, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I've thought about this. I would, do, would he really? Hey, guys, let me give you a little bit of proof, small proof. You know what Paul could do? He could pull up his shirt and say, you see these 195 lashes? My own people gave that to me. Five times they whipped me with 40 lashes minus one. You would actually let them do that to you? Paul, in essence, went through life with an agreement. Yeah, I'll do that. Let me get this straight. You're going to whip me, but I get to tell you about Jesus first? I'll do it every day. Paul, you're nuts. You would do that? I would go to hell for these people. Say, Jeff, do you really believe in hell? Listen carefully. Hell is a real place of separation from God for eternity with the most unimaginable, most horrific torments there is. And Paul says, I would do it right now. Now, here's the thing. That's impossible. Paul can't lose his salvation. That's the point of chapter 8. But there was one who was accursed for you. And it did good. It met the need. His name is Jesus. Would you notice number three? As we look at verse four and five, the unique advantages of Israel. We could get bogged down in these, and I'm not going to, so I'm going to hit them quickly. You've read twice now, I think, the list. Eight, maybe nine, if you include the first line, they're Israelites. But particularly eight advantages, the unique advantages of Israel. This is important. Paul lists them. Number one, he says they're the only nation, in essence, to be called God's son. The only nation to be... If we could have Exodus chapter 4, look what the Bible says. You'll remember this. God's going to send Moses back to the nation of Egypt. If we could have Exodus chapter 4. I'll turn there. There we go. Exodus chapter 4. Maybe it'll be it in a second. Exodus chapter 4, look at verse number 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Go do them all, but I will harden his heart. Moses, I'm just going to tell you before you do it, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You see that? Pretty strong. No other nation has that said about them. Back to Romans 9. A second advantage. The Jews were given the Shekinah glory of God. Up on Mount Sinai as Moses is receiving the law. God gives his presence among them. Literally later on in the tabernacle, this tent behind a curtain over the Ark of the Covenant, this box, this golden box with a lid on it about that wide, about that tall, and about, and about that wide there, and has a lid, and these angels are formed over it. When God was pleased with Israel, he comes down in kind of glory behind the curtain. No one goes in there except the high priest one day, one time a year, if God is pleased. They have that. In the tabernacle, later on in the temple, a more permanent structure. Paul alludes in verse 4 and 5, they have these special agreements with God. Literally covenants, God goes into a covenant. With Abraham, a covenant. With Moses, a covenant. With David, you shall be king and your descendant shall rule forever over the world. David, I'm making a covenant with you. Moses with you. Abraham with you. 
The Lord specifically found it. Hey, guys, I love the Constitution. I'm so thankful for it. We have a great country. God founded Israel. First five books of the Bible are God's laws and rules and founding documents for the nation of Israel. They're allowed to serve God in the tabernacle, in the temple, and they have all the worship system set up. That's an advantage for them. Specifically, he gets stronger as he goes. They have these promises concerning the Messiah and his coming kingdom. They have the patriarchs. You say, who are these patriarchs? Listen to these names. Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. I'll just tell you, Jacob, not a good guy at the beginning. But by the end, when God finished with him, Jacob's a great man. His name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Some of them are named Joseph, Judah, Levi. And then we get to some of the prophets. Moses would be counted, I'm assuming, one of the patriarchs. Other great prophets, Samuel. And then we have kings like David and Solomon, the wisest man. David, the greatest king that's ever lived. Solomon, the, the most wisest man who's ever lived. Look at these things, guys. This is not our heritage. We don't have this. But if you would put that all together, all these eight things flow down to the eighth one in verse number five. And here it is. Here it is. The Christ is God over all who became a man. Let me say it again. The Christ is over all. He is God who became a man. He became a Jewish man. Now if you chew on that, hey, I love America. I really do. I love America. It's the best time, best place. But I started typing out some things, and the more I typed, the more silly it sounded. So what'd you type? We've got Washington and Lincoln and Roosevelt. Take your pick, which one? We've got Ali and Jordan and Woods. We've got Presley and Sinatra and Houston. We've got Gates and Buffett and Winfrey. <laughs> this is silly. Oh, no, no, Jeff. Hey, and the young people say, no, no, we got Captain America and Batman. Okay, really? Israel has the God man. God became man. He's Jewish. Paul says they have some serious advantages. I've got to give you two applications. Number one, both of these are important. Advantages must lead people to receive salvation. I'm going to tell you, you can have all the advantages in the world. But if it doesn't lead you to salvation, you have nothing. The Jews had all that list of advantages. They have the scriptures, the patriarchs, the promises, the covenants. But listen, they did not let their advantages point them to Christ, to recognize Christ. They have 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that was telling them, here's what to look for, here's how you'll know them. And they missed it. They have not put their faith in Jesus. They didn't take advantage of all the advantages. They never recognized him. They did not receive his forgiveness. And yes, individually, one by one by one, literally today, while I am preaching, Jews are passing away and going to hell. Why? They've not taken advantage of the advantages. Advantages must lead people to receive. 
Many of you have similar advantages. Let this sink in. Some of you have a Christian father. You say, yeah, but he wasn't the best. I understand. But some of you have a Christian. You're like, that, hey, that's me. Some of you have a Christian mother. Some of you have a Christian father and mother. Some of you have a Christian neighbor. They literally live right next door on one side or the other or behind you or in front of you. You have a Christian neighbor and they've tried to talk to you about Christ. Some of you have Christian friends or coworkers who've reached out to you. You have advantages. Let me give you one right here. The Jews that Paul's talking about at this time, they didn't have this. You have a completed Bible. You can hear it taught and preached, I hope, clearly. It's on the radio. I hope it's clearly here. You have a completed Bible. You can hear it taught. Here's the big one. Please get this. You have major advantages. The Christ, though Paul said he was willing, it wouldn't do any good and it was impossible, but the Christ was cursed on a cross to take away all your sins and God says, I'll give you salvation for free. But you have to believe. You have to believe. You have to let the advantages turn you to receive and believe in Christ. Our second application, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, it's not going to be fast because it's very important. It's this. Advantages should lead people to give. Advantages must lead people to receive. Advantages should lead people to give. This is one of those places where the nation of Israel really failed to see God's plan. So what was God's plan? Get this. Watch this. Israel, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have favored status. Your favored status is so that you will be a light to the Gentiles to point them to God, to bring them to God. Watch this. This is important. Every part of what I'm about to say. The Jews, rather than recognizing their favored status was to be a blessing to the Gentiles, here's what they did. Their focus turned upward and inward. Upward and inward. You say, upward, isn't that good? It's great. The Jews, many times in their, in their history, not always, but many times, their favorite status, Lord, we worship you. We love you. And they turn their attention to God. They love him. And they turn their attention inwardly. Look, we're blessed. We're the chosen people. Look at all these wonderful things. And they start noticing themselves. Guys, don't do that. Because I want to tell you, I'm in the favorite status group. And I need to let it turn my attention upward. And I need to know who I am in Christ. But I don't need it to let, turn my attention only inward. That's where the Jews messed up. We must not make the same mistake. I'm going to get a little controversial for a moment. Actually, just, let me just dance on the edge of it. You ready? Romans 9 is probably the most forceful chapter in all of Scripture on election. If you hear election, you say, what in the world is that? If you were here four weeks ago, we referred to it basically as the foreknowledge of God, a very controversial subject. I'm going to tell you, you thought that was kind of in your face, and boy, look what the Bible says, and I don't know what I like. Chapter 9 is really going to get in our face, and it's going to make us deal with some things, and may not like it all, but we're going to let the Bible say what it says. Listen carefully. It's the most forceful chapter on election in the Scripture, and yet, look how it starts. It starts with passion for souls. I've heard this. I've heard people, they'll read the scripture and say, I'll be like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Chris was in my office just the other day. And we read a few verses. I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do with that? Look what that says. What can I do? All I can do is say what it says. You know what I've actually heard people? I see what it says, but if that were true, then we don't even need to pray anymore. 
And we don't need to like share our faith and witness. And we don't need to give anymore. And we sure don't need to go if that's true. And by the way, there's some people who hear this doctrine of election. You know what they end up doing? I don't need to pray. I don't need to plead with people. I don't need to give. I don't need to go. I'm here to tell you, if you reach that conclusion, you've missed the whole point. You've missed it. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14. Paul has left Timothy in a city of Ephesus and Paul's moved on and Timothy's like the ranking elder bishop pastor among the other elder bishop pastors. Paul, why are you, why are you writing these books? Why are you writing this letter to Timothy? Why did you leave Timothy there in Ephesus? Verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Catch that, the household of God, the family. So I'm writing you these six chapters so that you can teach the people how you ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church. The called out assembly is what it means. The church of the living God. Watch verse 15 at the end. What What does Paul call the church of the living God? A pillar and buttress of the truth. What he's saying is the church of the living God, the called out assembly, is supposed to be holding up the truth, supporting the truth, and get everyone to... Look at it and start believing it and advancing the truth. That's what the church does. Verse 16. What is the truth? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, He, God, godliness, was manifested in the flesh. Christmas. Vindicated by the Spirit, by His words, His miracles, particularly His resurrection. Vindicated. He really is the Christ. Seen by angels after the resurrection, we could say. Proclaimed, watch that line, proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Proclaimed, believed on, taken up to glory. I don't have time to develop this thought, but would you write it down? Y'all know the Great Commission? Go you therefore, I have all authority. Jesus says, go you therefore into all the world. Teach all nations, baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teach them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Go get them saved, get them to go public, and then teach them how to live for my glory. I'm with you, go do this. You know how some people interpret Matthew 28? Yeah, that's for the apostles, that's not for us. Really study 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, and tell me that the, the, great, the great Commission is not for the entire church. It's for all of us, not just the apostles. Advantages must lead people to give. Advantages must lead people to receive. Our final text. 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8. We're blessed. Paul is so burdened. In Romans 9, he says, I literally would go to hell for my nation, my people. Grace, if I ask you this morning, what would you do for one person, another human being who's never heard about Christ, what would you do for them to know Christ? Would you get out of your comfort zone and talk to someone? Would you pray for someone? Would you take your advantages and blessings and pass it on so that God's word, the gospel, can get around the world because they tell us there's over 2 billion people who've never heard about Jesus. You say, what happens to the people who never hear about Jesus? I'm going to tell you, if they die that way, 
having never put their faith in Christ, they will go to hell. You're like, that doesn't sound fair. I don't really agree with that. Study Romans 2. It's a fact. Study Acts 4. We should have passion for souls. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You say, Jeff, what in the world's happening here? I've got to be quick. <clears throat> Paul's collecting a love offering. From your perspective, if we could look at a map, okay? Uh, I've got to flip it in my mind. Okay. Over here's Jerusalem. Paul is writing to a group of people in Greece. Greece has two parts. Listen carefully. There's Macedonia and there's Achaia. Corinth, this city, this letter, this church, Corinth, is in Achaia. Macedonia has these kinds of churches. The Bereans, the Philippians, the the Thessalonians. You understand it? So that's Macedonia. Paul has been up there collecting a love offering for the poor Jewish saints who literally are starving and dying of financial need physical needs over in Jerusalem. So he's up here collecting a love offering from them and he's writing a letter to Corinth and the Achaeans and he's going to brag on how much the Macedonians have given and he's urging the the Achaeans, Corinthians, match what they've done or use their example as something for you to do. Watch this. Verse 1, chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, Corinthians, I really want you to know about the grace of God It's been given among the churches of Macedonia. Again, Philippians, Thessalonians, Bereans. God has been so good to them. This is is more than we thought. Verse 2. God's grace is being poured out up. Oh, you got to listen what God is doing up north. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, watch this, strange combination, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, this is like the worst kind of poverty, Basically the kind that they're taking the collection for over in Jerusalem. The Macedonians have the same kind. Verse 2 again, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's what God's doing up north. For they gave. Corinthians, listen. They gave according to their means, as I can testify. And beyond their means. They gave beyond their means. Of their own accord. I literally, I read verse 1, 2, and 3, and I, I, I think this is what happened. I think as they started bringing in, Paul had spent some time with them and knows their, current, their individual situations. I think Paul actually said, you can't do that. Yes, Paul, I, I can't. There's no way. Oh, no, no, I, I've, been, I've been collecting for a while. I just get a little bit and I've just been putting it over. You need this. Verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Please, Paul, I want to be a part. Please, let me give. Verse 5, and this not as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so now he's going to tell because of what God did up north in the Macedonian church, he's writing this letter. But Titus, you say, isn't that a book in the Bible? Yeah, it's one of Paul's young protégés. Titus is jacked up about what God's going to do down in Corinth. You think that's great. What do you see what the Achaeans do? Verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, Corinthians, you guys excel, faith, speech, knowledge, all earnestness. And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 8 is key. 
I say this not as a command. No one has to give. This is not a command. But to prove. By the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. My Christmas text from that last year is verse 9. Christmas Day, I preached on verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Literally, that's not talking about finances. Christ was the darling of heaven, left it all. He's God, becomes earth as a mere man, literally a servant, dies a death, the cross death, so that we can be rich in God and go to heaven. That's, what, that's the example, verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. Listen carefully. Paul's going to give financial advice in verse 10. Here it is. This benefits you. Who a year ago, you Corinthians, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it, so now finish doing it as well. So that your readiness in desiring it, boy, I remember, yeah, a year ago, I was really ready to give. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, you say, Jeff, what matters most to God? I'm going to tell you, your heart in your giving matters most. More than what you give is your heart, but both are important. Verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So to make himself clear, Paul is going to say in verse 13, I do not mean that others should be eased, all those Christians over in Jerusalem. I don't want them over there throwing parties and being wasteful. And you, burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, verse 14 has a key word, key phrase. As a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time. That's key. Corinthians, right now, you have an abundance at the present time. Right now, you're in a window where you have an opportunity to really be a blessing. So verse 14, here's Paul's financial advice. Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance, and I could tell you that spiritual abundance, the Jerusalem church, may supply your need. That there may be fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever, here's what the Old Testament says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Watch. Remember the Old Testament? Man is falling. Picture, here's two tents. Well-bodied, able-bodied, young people. Right beside them, older person, can't really get around. The well-bodied person goes out, collects manna, 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 plenty. We can't even eat all this, but look, it's all around. Gather more because this person over here can't gather as much. And so here's what's supposed to happen. You meet your needs and then share with them, hey, Miss so-and-so, okay, brought your manna today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Because what good does it do if at the end of the day when the manna dissipates, it comes fresh and new every day? Listen, what good does it do? I have all this manna. But it just molds and wastes. And somebody beside you needed it. So Jeff, what does that mean? What good does it do if you say, I have all of these blessings and material things? And you die. And you don't get to take it. Paul's advice in verse 10 benefits you. How? Jeff, how do you think giving to the Lord benefits? Listen. It benefits you materially, spiritually, eternally. You say, what? Honestly, guys, why would I say this? I'm not lying to you. 
I can defend this in Scripture. You don't want me to do it right now, I promise. <clears throat> you, want, you want me to wrap up, I understand. It will bless you. God will bless you materially slash financially. You say, that makes no sense. I'm telling you, those who give to God have more things directly and indirectly. You say, what does that mean? I believe those that give to God have more than if they would not have given to God. Directly. More or, Malachi 3, I am going to withhold some expenses that people around you are going to have or that you would have if you didn't give. Spiritually. See, what does that mean? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. Knowing God is using you. People who have experienced spiritual blessings say it is worth more than financial blessings. And eternally. Listen carefully what I'm about to say. If I am lying, find me when we get there. Come up. I would say come hit me in the mouth, but you're not going to want to do that when we get there. But if I'm lying to you, please come find me. Say, you were wrong. And I'll say, I'm sorry. Because I'm going to propose to you None who give now will be sorry then. None. Advantages should lead us to give. Chapter 9, two more verses. Paul says in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly. So he's doing this collection, same theme. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. So Jeff, what does that mean? Verse 6, sparingly, bountifully, sowing. Agricultural principle. Here's what I found. This year, I don't know about you at your house, I'll tell you. I'd almost say it's the weather, but I don't think that's what it was. I know it's not what it was. At my house, I didn't have one good cantaloupe come in this year. <clears throat> this year, not one. I didn't plant a garden. That's why I didn't have a good cantaloupe come in. I didn't have one single squash, not one green bean. I didn't have one tomato, no corn, nothing. So what does that have to do with anything? Listen, if you get to heaven and you make it because of the grace of Christ towards you, this is going to happen. But if when you get there and you look around and say, how come their rewards are so much better? They're having like a different experience than I'm having. This is great. Theirs is even greater. Maybe the answer will be, yeah, they gave. You didn't give. It's that simple. It's that simple. Yeah, they gave. You get to go to heaven. But you'll be sorry. You will wish then you did more. Look at verse 7 again. This is so important. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So Jeff, what's your stance? So Jeff, we're doing this Lottie Moon. Listen carefully. Do not let yourself be pressured into giving by me or anyone else to give what God does not lead you to give. Do not let yourself be pressured into giving what you do not want to give. So listen, if you don't want to give, Don't give. God's not broke. It'll be okay. Don't give. But if that's you, I would advise you to pray very specifically, God, why are you not leading me on what to give? And Lord, give me a willing heart. Would anybody this morning just say, I've never given to it? Frankly, right now, I don't want to give. 
They did a collection to meet physical needs. We just saw a video during the offering time of collection that's going on to meet spiritual needs, eternal needs. I don't want to give, but I dare you do this. God, give me a willing heart. Change my stingy heart. Because I love my stuff. I love my stuff. Finish out your outline. MacArthur says our giving should be three things. Number one, proportional. It's verse 3 of chapter 8. Paul says, The Macedonians gave according to their means, as I can testify. Chapter 8, verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Listen carefully. It's proportional. Not everyone gives the same. Some are going to give more. Some are going to give less. Why? Some have more. Some have less. Our giving, I agree with MacArthur, it's supposed to be proportional. Number two, our giving should be sacrificial. So all should give. All should give proportional. But all should give sacrificial. Look at verse 3 again. Chapter 8. For they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means. They gave till it hurt. You can't afford that. Yes, Paul, please let us give. We want to do this. Story is told of I got two stories and I'm done. <clears throat> I have a name with this. I heard it years ago. Maybe it's true. I'm not going to give you the name because of what's happened in this, this person's life. Story is told of a billionaire. A billionaire. Figure it out. Whose car was broke down on the side of the road because his tire blew out just outside of Las Vegas. A man stops to help this billionaire fix his flat tire. Has no clue who he is or how wealthy he is. And when the man finished, the wealthy man kept insisting how he could return the favor. And the man's just a good old boy from outside of town. And he says, no, 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 no big deal. No, no problem. Just glad to be able to help. That's fine. No, 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 sir, really? I want to be able to help. He kept insisting. Finally, the man gave in and says, well, my wife does love flowers. Certainly. Done. And a few days later, his wife received a big bouquet of the best flowers you've ever seen. And it had a note on it. And the note, I forget the details, but said something along these lines. In honor of your loving husband, thank you for your help. P.S. Your mortgage is paid. Now before you think I'm helping the next limo on the side of the road... <clears throat> That is not the point. Would we all agree that's generous? Could we say, dude, he just helped you fix a tire. But it allowed him literally to get to an important meeting. Who knows how much money was made in that meeting. Bottom line, your mortgage is paid. Listen, that is very, very generous. Is that sacrificial? Is that sacrificial to a billionaire? Y'all know a billionaire is 999 million? Very generous. The Macedonians gave, it's going to cost me. And then your third word is this. Our giving should be proportional. Our giving should be, let me get my words, sacrificial. Here's the third one. Cheerful. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor. Chapter 9, verse number 7. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I used to teach at the Christian school. I coached some basketball. Listen carefully. And I coached PE. And I'd make the guys run laps. Kind of alternate days. Some days we'd do all of it. Some days it's push-ups and sit-ups, and then we'll go play a game. Some days it's push-ups, sit-ups, and we're going to run laps, and then we're going to play a game. Can't tell you how many times through the seventh, eighth, ninth graders, I would hear moans and groans. I, I can picture it. We're outside waiting on the last ones. Hurry up, guys, come on. They're supposed to change clothes in a certain amount of time. Line up. Are we running today? Yep. Oh. Uh, how many? Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four, depending on what we had coming up. Hey, we'll play a game after that. Now listen, what would have happened? I've imagined this. I wish I could have done it. What would have happened if I bring them all out? We running today, coach? Absolutely. How much? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. It's up to you. Up to us. Yeah, I want you to do, just do at least one lap. Cool, okay, cool. And off they go. And, of course, the speedsters are going to go to the front. And the others are just jogging. And some are trying to walk. And I'm like, hey, no, come on, no walking now. Now picture, as they're rounding the opposite side of the field, going around that net, headed back toward me at this net, I have an orange... Home Depot five-gallon bucket. I pop the lid off of it. Inside, literally, it is stuffed with $100 bills. I wish I could have done this just as a test. I'm curious what would have happened if the first guy makes his way by and sees me, and he starts slowing down a little bit out of breath. There, that, and I say, man, great job. Thanks for running your lap. Hand him a $100 bill. What? I, I get to keep, absolutely. Second guy's right behind me, $100 bill. Thank you. This is for, just for running that lap? Absolutely. So, hey guys, got to get these guys. Hey, way to go. $100 bills. $100. Here you go. And the guys on the other end are going, what's going on down there? I don't know. What do you think? Oh, no, let's go see. And then the other guys who just finished first lap, like, hey, dude, what do you think the chances? Oh, no, let's see. Let's try it. Come on, man. Let's go. And off they go. And the other guys are going, hey, wait, he didn't say we had to run. What are they doing? And they get up here, $100 bill, $100 bill. And all of a sudden, now it's really the test. These guys are starting to get back around, and sure enough, there's another one. They got their second $100 bill. I'm telling you, I know what would happen. The kids who've been kind of walking over here, all of a sudden start, dude, they just got their, they're going to pick it up now. Boom, let's go. The guys who just finished lighting up two, you know what they're going to do? Let's go, move it. You guys want to play a game today? No, we don't want to play a game. No game. I'm telling you, they would wear themselves out. They would be puking on the side and getting back in. Time's up at 3 o'clock. We're done. And I'm handing them out. Handing them out. How much are we running? Just run. How much you want? God says give. Will you give? Last year we raised $10,000 for international missions. It'll take everybody to do that. I think we should be beyond that. I dare you to pray. I dare you to get to the point. God, why did you bless me? I've blessed you to be a blessing to them. Heads bowed.
Do you have any advantages? You sitting there this morning, I really want you to listen to what I'm about to say. I just focused on money and giving, and I want to be very clear. Throwing money at missions will not save anyone. So I want us all to listen. I'm talking to me. I'm sitting right there beside you this morning. Listen carefully. Do you know how to pray? Be honest. You're like, you know what? When I'm in it, when I'm right, I do. I know how to talk to God. Then pray, pray, pray for specific souls. You've been blessed. You have an audience with God. Christian, do you pray for lost souls? Can you name somebody? I have somebody right now. I am praying that he will be saved. I name him by name. If you know how to pray, you've been blessed. You have a tremendous advantage. It's to give it and use it. Christian. Do you know the truth? How many people are sitting here right now? You say, Jeff, I know what it takes to become a Christian. I even know some of the verses. I even know the references. Or I've even memorized those. Then share your faith. Please, share your faith. You've been blessed with advantages for a reason. Not just to receive, but to give. Give it back. 